This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. You can peacefully protest and be attacked. You can um, you can put your hands on the wheel and say, yes, sir, and yeah. you can still be killed. You can do all of the things that people tell you that you're supposed to do, and it doesn't work. Um, but yet, people will say, yeah, but they could have, and, you know, could have what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need we need more empathy. Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. One, two, two. Interchangeable White Ladies. One, two, two. Interchangeable White Ladies. Inter- interchangeable. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Annie. Today's essential question is what impact is the coronavirus pandemic having on mental health and how are those impacts uniquely burdensome for female identified folks and people of color? And since the world is a dumpster fire and continues to explode, we are also going to talk about a lot of the events that have happened in the last week. And this episode is being recorded um, on June 2nd. We have with us a special guest. <laughs> Welcome, Michelle Saner. Saner? Beautiful. Yes. Michelle earned her BA in psychology from the University of Northern Colorado and her PhD in social psychology from the University of Montana. She has been a professor of psychology at Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, Washington for 19 years. That's a good run. Michelle is a social psychologist, not a therapist by training. Her research, however, focuses on differential perceptions and expectations of women and has a unique perspective on how her focus connects to mental health and anxiety that are exacerbated by the pandemic. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I say that's a good run because like 19 years at one at one place is like, that's like, I don't know, especially in teaching. A lot of folks like uh, move around, change schools, go to different universities and stuff. 19 years at PLU. I love PLU. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did teach at a couple of places before I came to PLU, but certainly found my home there. Awesome. So I haven't that's wanted great. to go anywhere else. Yeah. Excellent. We were wondering, um, in addition to your bio, is there anything else that listeners should know about yourself, kind of thinking about your context, or what brought you to PLU 19 years ago? I um, I grew up in suburban Denver. Hmm. I um, have just, I think, kind of just a regular suburban background, um, and kind of came to my love of feminism and gender roles um, through my college education at the University of Northern Colorado. That's awesome. Um, University of Northern Colorado, is that in, where is that? Greeley, Colorado. Okay. Yeah. North of Denver. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love Colorado. It's beautiful. Um, so how did you end up in Tacoma? What was, I mean, like, so teaching brought you here, but was there a specific draw to the Pacific Northwest or did you just, did you find a job opening and you were like, I'm going for it? Like, what was the, how'd you end up, how'd you end up here? A little bit of all of that. Um, I was teaching at a very small liberal arts college in the middle of Kansas. Mm. And um, it it was Kansas. So it was rather conservative. (laughs) I grew up in Colorado, so it was very flat. Um, And so I, and humid, I can't stand humidity. So um, when I I started thinking about where I wanted to live long-term, one of my friends from grad school who was teaching up in the Portland area, 
gave me a, a job ad um, for actually for Lewis and Clark down in Portland. And when I looked at the ad, this one also popped up for, for PLU. And I thought, this is where I want to be and applied for both of them. And PLU wanted me. So mm -hmm. awesome. brought me across the United States with a, a two month old infant in tow. Um, wow. I look back now and I think, how did I possibly manage to do all <laughs> yeah. that? But the thing is that you just do, you, you do all this crazy stuff and you, you manage and then you look back and wonder how it was that you actually managed it. Mm -hmm. That seems very fitting um, for what I hope when we look back six months, a year, three months, three years from now, like, I don't know when that time is, but I can't help but thinking um, about that in this context. You mentioned that you um, long ago started being interested in feminism and then spent, has, has spent much of your life doing this work. Um, can you think of a moment or what was it that kind of led you to focusing on this kind of research um, and focusing your energy on this kind of work? I can think of a moment. I was in a um, sociology of sex roles class. Um, huh. This was back in the late 80s. So it was sex roles instead of gender roles at the time. Yeah. And um, Professor Hewitt um, was talking about how more women needed to be doing research into these issues. And I was all of 19 years old and fascinated by the subject matter. And I thought, I could do this. I love this research and I was fascinated by it. So she really sparked my interest. And then I also at the same time had a social psychology class and my professor in that class also um, just fascinated me with all of the research. And he actually asked me to be a research assistant. And so putting the two together, I thought this is, is exactly what I want to do. Um, and have enjoyed doing research studies ever since. I found my love of teaching when I went to graduate school and actually started doing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You, I want to ask you one quick question uh, before we dive more into the EQ, but you have uh, one of your most recent publications is titled Dancing Backwards in High Heels. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that work? And is that somewhere published that we can link to um, as well? Or is that more behind a paywall or like a database? I absolutely can send you a link. It's published okay. in Sex Roles. Um, oh. It's an academic journal, but it's been out there. I did this research with um, one of my colleagues from Eastern Washington University, Amani L. Um She's the first author on that paper. And the two of us started um, talking about gender differences in the way that professors are treated. Um, and we're mostly, for the first start, we were interested in um, the use of titles and how um, students didn't seem to call us Dr. Ella Laley or Dr. Sainer. They called us, you know, by our first names without asking mm -hmm. first. And we had both been interested in that for a long time. Um, we started working together and um, then it evolved into this, this other study, the one that's published, where we um, were looking at how faculty members um, perceive students' demands um, on their time, extra office hours and asking for extra help and um, kind of taking liberties with them. Um, so she also did a, a second study and the two of them are published together. Hmm. So there's three of us, um, one of her former graduate students who's now a professor herself um, also helped us with the write-up. Um, so it actually got quite a bit of press and that was um, heartening to see and very exciting for me um, at my small school and not having had a lot of time to do research in mm -hmm. the past um, decade or so. 
Um, so absolutely, I'll, I'll link it to you. I think it's quite fascinating. Um, yeah. I can see how that would have, I mean, you, you don't obviously as a social psychologist, this will probably make you bristle a little bit, but, but thinking about <laughs> how um, those ideas, um, the idea about the use of female identified folks is like use of their time, right? Could be generalized into other professions or into other mm-hmm. um, other contexts, right? Because I, you know, um, the college university um, system is, it's unique, right? In a lot of ways. And so oh, how that applies in other areas, that's, a, it, oh, your research like it's endless, right? Because you could talk about mm-hmm. how, how female identified folks are treated in those other spaces too. Absolutely. And we talk about it in um, connection to emotional labor and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. extra, you know, unacknowledged work that that women and certainly people of color do in any profession. Um, mm-hmm. And so we were, you know, putting it together with professors from our own experience, but um, certainly see the applications much broader than that. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. What courses are you currently teaching at PLU? What are you teaching right now? Uh, Our semester ended. This last spring, I taught um, psychology of women, and I'm going to be teaching that again this summer. Um, My typical course load is is intro psych, which I I just love to teach, um, and social psychology, and psych of women is a regular offering as well. Can you talk a little about the difference between um, social, well, I can say right, social (laughs) psychology um, and other types of psychology, just for listeners to kind of delineate between those things? Uh, Social psychology is um, kind of a broad look at how people interact within social systems. Mm -hmm. So how um, the, your beliefs about others and your um, anticipated interactions with other people influence the way you act in that context. So people in a social context, social psychology is, is really broad. And we look at, um, interpersonal interactions, um, things like conformity and discrimination and and those sorts of things, but also how um, our thoughts about ourselves change as a result of thinking about how other people might view us. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of, uh, this is like a, uh, I just got a deja vu about our, when we, one of our very first episodes we ever recorded about the Panopticon. Remember about oh, what yeah. yeah, and like yeah. how that reinforces like your beliefs about yourself or your security safety or you know comfort or whatever. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's I I you know, I think about this kind of in the broader context of like I took I took sociology classes in college, but I never took psychology, but you know, things like deviant behavior, and we've seen a lot of recent examples like in the news media of like things would be considered deviant behavior, right? And like, this is like just kind of a really rich like study in like what that looks like in our society, right? Um, When people violate expectations or norms and how that is disruptive, right? And disruptive in ways that um, some people are like, yeah, that's great. This is fantastic. Or um, disruptive in ways that people find unappealing or say, this is not how you should protest or this is not how you should participate in, you know, this, this way. And it's interesting to see those theories in action there's in the last like week or so. It's really, it's really fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious if you're experiencing um, the pandemic and um, the protests of the last couple of weeks in a, like in a, with a different lens because of your work or like, what are some of the things you're picking up on? I was wondering if you would mind kind of talking us through that a little bit. Um, maybe going back to thinking about in March, like what are you thinking about in terms of COVID? Um, you mentioned emotional labor, just in the ways that you're seeing the way, and, and specifically, you know, because you're set in Washington, and the way that um, people are 
are processing this kind of work? Are there any um, observations that you've had or things you've been thinking about regarding this? Regarding the pandemic in general? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I can't help it, um, but look at things through the lens of social <laughs> psychology. Yeah, <laughs> It's just kind of who I am these days. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the very first things I started noticing is the extent to which um, women and mothers in particular were doing all of the extra work involved in the pandemic. And um, then when children stop going to school, then they're, they're doing extra childcare, and then they're expected to also become teachers and they're cooking and cleaning. And I didn't see, um, men doing quite as much um, that they were going about their business that certainly they were stressed and doing their jobs from home um, but they were able to to separate the the rest of the house from from what they normally do um, whereas women seem to just take on all of the extra household duties um, and not really think about whether they should be or not or whether um, they also need to to separate their jobs from from what they're doing in the homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw this is silly, but I saw a TikTok. I, I love TikTok so much. I don't know if you uh, social psychologists probably also love TikTok because it's it's fascinating um, glimpse into what's happening in society at any given moment. But I um, saw a TikTok about a woman said that she. I, I don't even know if I could accurately you know restate it because it was just so funny the comedy of it. But she said and the tragedy, right? She said that her husband came down after a long day working in his home office with the door closed after she, they had three kids and she was cooking and cleaning, doing laundry all day and also working from home while he was like holed up in his office and he came down and she had made dinner and he said, well, is this what's for dinner? And like, he was kind of critical of her and, and she said, yeah, this is, this is it. So like frozen pizza, whatever it is, you know? And um, he said, God, I'm just so exhausted. <laughs> she was like, if he like, if, if something happens to him, like you never saw this, like, because I just like cannot handle him right now. He's like making me crazy. Like, um, she just couldn't, she, she was fed up. Right. Because that was, that was her reality. Her reality was that she was teacher, mom, um, housekeeper, um, working herself from home while her husband locked himself behind a door and, you know, just kind of like, I'm so exhausted from my job. Right. And not to say that, you know, every situation is the same, but just could like the kind of the insight into like that it was funny, but it was also tra- tragic. Like that's, there's no equality in that like space, right. In their domestic space. Like they weren't sharing the childcare. They weren't sharing the, they weren't sharing anything. Right. And so, and I feel guilty. Like I feel guilty of that too, because my, we have a, a pr- relatively new baby at home and I'm kind of just like, it's tough, right. The balance is really tough. And my wife takes on a huge burden and like, we are two, two mom family. And like, she's still taking on more of a burden than I am. So that's, gets weird. Like, it's just very, like, it's a lot. It's a lot to unpack. But anyway, TikTok. Everybody should be on TikTok. <laughs> Point of the story. You um other 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 observations or things that you've kind of been thinking about in terms of just the disproportional impact that coronavirus seems to be putting on certain populations. Well, absolutely. The um the amount of work that people in service jobs are having to do mm-hmm. that has suddenly become high risk. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't used to be high risk to be a grocery store clerk or mm-hmm. um, a delivery driver. And now suddenly you're doing a high risk job and you may get a small bump in pay, but your pay is so low to begin with. Um, and um, there's a lot of people feeling really entitled to those services mm-hmm. and getting, you know, their, 
their stress and their feelings of, of being overwhelmed are being put onto service workers as they always have been. I mean, right. have always yelled at, at the Starbucks barista when they're having a bad day, but now their, their sense of entitlement to have their mm-hmm. coffee or their groceries or all of this is, is coming to a head. And these folks are getting very little work, very little pay for doing a hard job in a difficult situation. And now they're, they're putting their own health at risk in doing so um, in some very tragic ways. Mm-hmm. And so the, the social inequities that, mm-hmm. that are coming out um, are, they've always been there, but they're certainly yeah. being highlighted by the pandemic um, in big ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that leads me to think about um, just the, the mental health toll, right? I mean, I think about all the people that I know, or just think about a variety of people that I know and how everyone's kind of processing it, right? So some people, um, I think a lot of like the personalities are involved, right? Our preconditions around anxiety. Um, Annie and I have kind of been talking about this, uh, whether or not like these conditions, if you already struggle with things around anxiety, is it worse? Is it better? Do you already know how to cope with it? But it's like 10 times worse. And we've kind of been like throwing a few different things. Annie, you've spoken a lot about that. Do you want to share a little bit? And then we can see. I don't remember where I first read about this, but just someone mentioned that they, the reason why in the first few days of like, um, kind of pandemic a week of uh, stay at home orders and everything that was happening in Washington that someone had said something about, wow, this is really like for people with anxiety, this is actually um, I'm like, they were describing themselves as feeling like kind of eerily calm. And I, I also felt that the first few days of like, okay, I'm fine. Good. Like, I'm fine. Like everything's going to be fine. And I even find myself kind of being like, it's fine. Everything's fine. And I, I think, um, and they kind of described it as folks with anxiety already are on high alert for things that are um, disasters or <laughs> like are um, uh, stressful or anxiety producing. And so they're already attuned to those things. So when something really big and crazy happens, the the folks who panic are ones who aren't prepared <laughs> for like the, and it doesn't mean that's not like a superpower of any kind. Please don't misunderstand, you know, that like, oh, wow, I just like I'm superior to you and I'm calm now. But no, it's not necessarily a good thing, right? My brain kind of just went, okay, it's good. You're fine. Like uh, some kind of surge of some calming chemical in my brain was just like, this is fine. It's kind of like that dog sitting in the burning room with, it's like on fire and it's like, I'm fine. This yeah. Fine. Fine. Drinking the coffee. Like, yeah. But how in a way. Yeah, exactly. How your brain reacts to the um, stimulus, the trauma, the whatever, you know, is happening on any given day. Um, I, it's kind of like, there's this metaphor in my mind of like, um, you know, like you get this, like um, this kind of heightened panic, but people who have anxiety are already kind of like right here. And so then it's not that much further to be like, I mean, I'm a, for people who can't see me because you're listening to the podcast, I just, I made a visual with my hands, which was your anxiety is kind of high. Um, but people who already have anxiety are near that ceiling already. Like they're already there. And so it's not much further to climb in terms of panic. And well, and I also think that the pandemic gave us a, an actual thing to be anxious about. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, yes, I have a reason to be anxious. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that I know with my own anxiety, sometimes I'm, I'm anxious because I'm, thinking that I shouldn't be anxious and that I'm making all this stuff up in my head. And so now there's an actual virus that could kill you and I'm not making this up anymore. (laughs) And so I I have a reason and it's a good, it's okay to be anxious now. And so I think that does have somewhat of a calming effect. There's, there's preparation and there's also a solid reason to be, to Mm. be anxious. Absolutely. 
Well, and I find like, I, you're talking about the cycle makes me think of the cycle where I'm like, well, I need to go to sleep because if I don't go to sleep, then I'm not going to feel good tomorrow. And I know it'll physically heal, but then I'm like anxious about being anxious about not sleeping. It's like that. Right. And then like, mm-hmm. then that leads to anxiety dreams. And then I wake up and I'm like, you know, open cause I'm on different time zone here in Abu Dhabi. And so like, you guys are just getting going and I'm like, in the next morning, I'm like, holy shit, what's happening today? Like if I check Twitter, like messages or whatever, and just kind of like that constant, like, um, mm-hmm. surge of, you know, feeling and kind of those ups and downs that happen. So I don't, I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts about like just that process as people are, are coping with it. I know a lot of our listeners have found, I mean, just different ways. It just is what it is. Right. And people are finding ways of maybe trying to manage. I don't know. Sometimes it's not managing at all. Right. Um, what do you kind of, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Or do you have any, um, takes on that? I think, the most important thing for me is to remember that you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days, but in the midst of this, you're going to have good hours and you're going to have bad hours and that you may be doing fine at noon. And at one o'clock you read something or you think of something or you, you learn some new piece of information and you're suddenly in a panic. And then that also will go away. Um, The thing about emotions is that, we, we have a tendency to think that when we're experiencing something intense, we're going to feel this way forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Think back to adolescence when everything was so intense and you were so happy and everything is going to be happy forever. And then, you know, five minutes later, you're devastated and the world's going to fall apart. Um, and so we, we have this inability to, to foresee the future um, and how we're going to feel. Yeah, psychologists will talk about it as affective forecasting. Yeah. Um, and so when you're you're in the depths of, of a depression or not even a clinical depression, but you're just feeling bad at the moment, you're not realizing that it's going to end and that you'll come back to, to more of a baseline. Mm-hmm. And I think that, again, the pandemic seems to just heighten everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it it makes all of our emotions feel worse or maybe even better at times and that it's okay to feel both of those things. Mm. And I think that's, what's so tough is like, there is, it feels like there also really is no end in sight. Right. So I think for a lot of people it was like, okay, lockdown for this long, right. Like we'll make it to this point. And then that keeps getting shifted. Right. Because new science is out, right. New research people are, you know, like this whole thing is being, people are adapting along the way. Right. And our leaders are adapting or not adapting, um, and then I think about, you know, I think about just that, like, you never know when it, what's going to, when it's going to stop. Right. Um, and then putting to me, putting that in the, in the context of the political climate we're in, I feel like since 2016, that that roller coaster of, oh shit, just keeps happening over and over again. Right. And so after Trump was elected, like for us, Annie and I used to work at the same school, like just that hanging at the end of every day was like, what was going to be, you know, what was the latest, you know, executive order what was the latest, this, that, the other thing that was going to impact our students, impact the people we love, impact the people we care about. Um, and so I don't, I, I imagine you have some kind of take on like long-term effects of that kind of thing, or just like, I mean, what do you think about, about that, <laughs> that kind of ongoing, um, I don't know, aggression is not the right word, but that ongoing feeling. Yeah, I, I liken it to walking on eggshells mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that when people are, are in a, a situation, so it could be this pandemic or it could be that they're in an abusive relationship, or it could be that they're constantly dealing with, with, um, 
racism and institutionalized racism, that you're always walking on eggshells, trying to prevent the bad things from happening, but just waiting for the other shoe to drop, um, to pile metaphor on metaphor. Um, so it just, and that, that constant heightened stress is you're just so used to it that you're not even aware that life doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, and I agree since 2016, we've, many of us, most of us have been um, waiting for this other shoe to drop and wondering what bad thing is going to happen or what um, we need to deal with now. And any kind of low level stress is going to have um, physical and mental health repercussions in the long term. And when it's incessant and it never goes away, you don't have time to recover. Mm-hmm. And so, that, you know, it can lead to long-term term issues. That's where burnout comes in is that you're just mm-hmm. constantly trying to put out the fires mm-hmm. and um, never have a chance to recover yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember that in the early, early days of the, um, after, you know, the 2016 election, that it was like a series of executive orders. And like Hope was saying that every day it was like a new thing, right? And that's how it felt. I mean, like, and folks, I probably remember, like, it's, it felt like that every single day, what's next? And I think it was January or February that was the travel ban. And that was like, mm-hmm. he, he was sworn in in January of 2016. Yeah. And that was like, one of the first things that he brought as an executive order. And it was, and it's just, I don't know, there, there were people who were, um, who have been like like traumatized and re-traumatized by the actions of the Trump administration um, from day one, right? Um, and and before that, because Donald Trump is awful. But um, like, but I, you know, I hear totally what you're saying about it's like a kind of collective trauma that never ends. It's like a perpetual motion machine of bullshit. <laughs> Sorry. So we've been talking at our house like all like particularly we're talking about George Floyd's murder and the things that are happening right now. And like just this manifestation of it's just like bullshit wrapped in bullshit packaged in bullshit. Right. So like whether it's, we're talking about the like police brutality itself, right. Uh, our leadership, the complications, the fact that we're in a pandemic, but then like, so people now like you're risking your life health wise, but also like your life is literally, especially if you're a black person, your life is literally, um, on the line, both in regards to police brutality and daily living, as well as the health implications. A lot of us have read that research, and we can link to some of it in the show notes in terms of why um, or what is happening in the Black communities that are impacted uh, with these health disparities. And well, so I'm just thinking yeah. about that too. Go ahead. Yeah, no, just that, saying, that Black people proportionally are dying more from coronavirus, you know, than right. rich groups. And I saw something about this was actually a Native American woman in Seattle talking about the Seattle Indian Health Board had requested, um, requested like PPE and like equipment mm-hmm. and stuff for the, for the native community that was being treated for coronavirus. And they have a much higher, co- you know, contracting rate and a much higher death rate from coronavirus than other groups. And um, the, the health department sent what they were like, can we have PPE? The health department sent the body bags. That's all they sent. And so yeah. it's like, that's, this is like, I mean, that's, I, that's it. Like that's the, that's yeah. period. I mean, that's what the groups, people of color are, specifically being left out of these conversations about, um, you know, you know what, like they're kind of a kind of collective understanding of kind of white establishment, white systems that they don't matter. Right. And so that, you know, I think about exactly what Hope was saying about the, 
you know, in the kind of black, in the black community, that this is a, it's a specific type of um, difficulty, tragedy, um, struggle, because it's not just kind of the ongoing um, racial violence from the police, but it's also like you're, you are fighting for your lives in so many ways. Um, so thinking, I mean, it's kind of thinking about that too. Like, I want to make sure we acknowledge, right. Just the impact, um, like within our white privilege. Right. So there's like four, you know, white people here talking about this stuff and just thinking about, um, I think when in 2016, when I started to see more white people kind of waking up to some of the, the things that, you know, like we know people of color experience all the time consistently. Um, and just realizing like that is, you have a tiny bit of, hopefully you have a tiny bit of empathy for what that experience is like on a daily basis, right? And it's my hope that the last few years that that's been growing a little bit. Um, and that's why now that we're seeing the way that demonstrations are, you know, happening and protests are happening, people like, I don't know if people are more empathetic or less so, or it's just kind of all convoluted and mixed up um, and understanding what's going on. Um, what do you think about some of the things that you're seeing now, just from the lens that you bring to, um, to the way that people are protesting, demonstrating, what, what are some thoughts you have on that? I, I want to hope that that more people are aware of what's been going on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so clear um, for people who've been living it that this is it's not a new thing, the racism and right. the discrimination and all of the the things that are happening. They're just a lot more out in the open than they used to be. Yeah, um, and so. Um, I, I want to hope that there are more people who are, are understanding um, how, how this has been impacting um, communities of color since the beginning um, mm -hmm. of the United States, if not before. Um, but I also think that it's being used um, for continued racial divide and that in so many ways, um, every little thing is being politicized yeah. In, in ways that we haven't seen um, in at least our recent historical past. And with, the, with social media being what it is and with people spending so much time on it, that's all they're seeing. They're being mm -hmm. steeped in the, the division um, and separated from, from their actual communities. And so in some ways, I think it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. um, but I also have a lot of hope in ways that, that people are also seeing the other side, I just wish that that we would be a little more judicious in what media we're consuming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I think is like part of, you know, the, just around anxiety and so on. Like I find if I, I want to know more stuff so that I have a better sense of what I can control, right? And knowledge, I'm a teacher, so that makes sense, right? So, but then at the same time, as I'm consuming that and trying to parcel through what's true, what's fake news, what's like nonsense conspiracies, whatever, right? Then you start to feel that press, like you said, so much um, and as you're trying to consume, as you're consuming it, right? And then it's also like very much an attack on your mental health and spirit and emotions. And I, I like someone, you mentioned at the beginning, like being a middle schooler. I feel like that's the stage. I mean, I'm like one moment I'm just like raging about whatever. And then like the next moment I'm raging about something else. And I'm like, I don't even care about this laundry right now. Like, who gives a crap about these dishes? Like who cares about this assignment that I'm grading? Like doesn't even matter, you know? And so then it's like trying to just manage those things. Um, and then also like, I always am thinking about too, like, how do I, how do I channel that? And maybe that's me over kind of controlling, but like, how do I channel that to something effective? Right. So like donating, 
and I feel like donating so passive, right? So like, what can I do to help try to make change, particularly around, you know, policing in, in America, in my own city, in Tacoma, in, you know, other parts of the country. Um, and just like trying to figure out like, what, what can we do with this energy that we feel? And I know there's some criticism around like the need to fix things, right? And like why people are really good at wanting to fix everything. Um, and I think maybe there's some gender dynamic issues there as well, but um but at the same time, it's like, I don't, we, we wanting to do something, right? Like needing to do something because this is, is too much, right? It's been too much for far too long since the beginning of American's history, but um, maybe we, I don't know, we got to do something about it. Right. And so is that going to, is that going to happen or not? I don't know. I don't know. Your faces. I, I don't know. I don't know. Exactly. You're shaking your head. Yeah. I, I, We're I, all I, just like, oh, for people wanna... who can't see our faces. I want to think positive and hope that it will, but then I also, um, thinking positively is so, um, feels so cheap right now. Like, like I, oh, I can just like smile and it's fine and it feels cheap. We've had 401 years of this stuff. Yep. Uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and, uh, see where we go from there. Cool. This is Doug Mackey. Producer of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by Pacific Lutheran University. Your student can go to college just about anywhere in the world, but have you thought about the school just down the street? When it comes to their undergraduate programs, PLU is a triple threat. First, PLU has a great liberal arts program that will expand young minds and help them thrive no matter where they go after leaving our campus. Second, PLU is part of the Tacoma and South Sound community, passing on the values of civic engagement to the next generation. And finally, PLU has programs that will prepare students for some of the most important and high-demand careers post-graduation. Liberal arts, civic engagement, and professional studies, a triple threat that will help your student thrive. To learn more, visit plu.edu slash admission. Now back to the show. And we're back. So Michelle claims that she's not a clinical psychologist, but I am pretty sure that uh, maybe it's just her vibe because um, like this feels like therapy. Like this feels very therapeutic. <laughs> I think um, as a society, we should probably have mandatory like group therapy. Um, and not even after this is done, like you can have therapy on the Zoom. Like we should just do it. Like we should just... We should, we, it should be required. I think everyone needs to process their feelings. You know, I could just have a massive Zoom therapy session led yes. by the American Psychological Association. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you're like, if, you know, I, I think, you know, have little, um, you can do breakout rooms. Like, oh, are you into like, like Zen meditation? Like go to the Zen breakout room, you know? Or, oh, you're like, you want to talk specifically about your relationship with your dad? Dad trauma breakout room, you know? I'm feeling like we'd have to put people in breakout rooms because they're in denial about what their issues are. So, oh, yeah. 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 So who gets, who gets to decide? We just like, you do like a, like a survey at the beginning and they're like, oh, you spiked off, <laughs> you spiked on the like dad, dad trauma scale. Here you go in the dad trauma. Yeah. Like something like that would be good. Or you say, I'm not a racist. So you have to go into oh, a racist yeah. room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. Like, that's a trick question. Are you racist? Are you not? Like, Are you racist? You say no, and then, you know, it's like the combination of questions. You have like a five point scale. Like how racist are you, right? And then that's what you judge. Like, like, uh, like I'm not at all slightly, moderately, you know, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. You go to the colorblind yeah. room. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So when you look at the administration and you think about like just your work, like what are some things that you notice about just like behaviors? And I'm, I'm curious what you see in terms of like, I know there's a lot of jokes around like um, the Trump administration are all like uh, narcissists and psychotic and whatever, whatever. I think we like people are quick to label things, but like, I mean, what do you, what do you actually think as a professional, <laughs> not therapist professional, but what's your hot take on that? Not a therapist, so I can't diagnose anybody. <laughs> she's, um, she's not a clinical psychologist. We already. I know, I know. I know. Just kidding about the social aspect, though. Like, what are the social things that you're like? Social psychology of, oh. of the Trump administration. There you go. There, there is just too many things. Um, I, the, well, actually, the scary thing is that they do so many of the things well. Um, like the propaganda um, is mm-hmm. being done in a way that is dividing the country. That you know, social psychologists have been talking about for, for decades. And in fact, a lot of social psychology grew out of um, yeah. World War II and trying to understand um, how Nazi Germany came into being. And so we've been talking about how these things work and how they work effectively for a long time. And then you watch them do it. And, um, you know, the, just preying on people's insecurities and their their fears and saying things with a forceful tone and, you know, we're going to make this better for you um, and people buy into it, um, which is so, it's not unexpected if you're looking at it through um, the psychological research that's out there, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's happening so insidiously and it's like people are not seeing the warning signs. Mm. Why do you think that is? Are we just, in, is it part of in denial? Is it part of like uh, off the air, you mentioned like cons- emotional constipation or inability to, I don't yeah. know. I don't want to say push one out. That's a really terrible question. More fiber. Yeah, as a country, we certainly need to be um, dealing more directly with the emotions and the, the history that we have um, so that we can process it and move it on. Um, that that we are um, stunted or constipated or something emotionally as a country, um, but I, I do think that that people are overwhelmed by how much um, bad there is, yeah. and um, it, you you need to to protect yourself a little bit, and so you carve out your own little part of the world, and um, you you don't want to change when. Um, that change looks like it's going to tear your own life apart. And so when somebody comes in and tells you that, you know, we're going to go back to this, you know, mythical, wonderful time that we used to, used to be, and um, your life is going to be great. And like it is in the, the, the storybooks, you want to believe it. And so you continue to believe it. Um, if you admitted how much wrong there is in the world and how, um, how difficult other people's lives are, then you'd have to change your life too. And I think that's just hard for people to, to face. Mm-hmm. I think I've met a lot of, with, um, you know, kind of the reluctance to change. It re- it's, reminds me of like, um, like inertia, right. Or um, is that the right, is that the right uh, 
physics term where like you, an object object in motion stays in motion unless yeah. it's, it's equal and opposite, you know, kind of forces put against it. Shout away. out to your science teacher from high school. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to my high school physics teacher for um, teaching me that and also taking us to the popsicle stick bridge building competition at, <laughs> at Bellevue Square Mall. You are the GOAT. Um, Momentum, the, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Momentum. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well then maybe not. Thank you to my high school physics teacher, but to Doug instead. Um, Momentum. It's just this like, you know, the idea that, um, you know, people hate change. Right. And so if you get comfortable in um, your kind of how things are, you, why would you change them? Especially if they benefit you, why would you do that? That's just like, it's not, it's not in your own self-interest, right. Or, self-preservation you you want to keep things the way they are because they're they're fine that way right and then you think about for folks who they aren't fine right or they're not fine the way they are and and that that um can appear to be a threat to someone who thinks things are fine <laughs> they think they're fine totally fine and some said they're not you're like oh that's threatening to me because um i believe that they are fine right I think what blows me away, though, like particularly right now is thinking about I was talking about like different groups that might feel that way. Right. And I think about like police officers. It's not fine. You're not fine. Like, even though I I think how could you even be in that profession and not be like, hey, things aren't fine, even if even if I didn't believe in my implicit biases or like the racism that my partner did or whatever it is like the feeling of being threatened or like living your life in fear all the time of all these bad black people and bad everybody else who hates me. Like, I feel like that's a very anxious spot to live in. And so even to me, if that was, if I was in that position, I would want to bring change. And I don't know if that's just me, you know, not being in that position, but I'm like, I would want it to be changed. Like I would want change. I would want reform. I would want, you know, like I would want something else to happen. And so I, I think I would like work for that or I don't know, something else. Like I, I can't wrap my head around like some of the, some of the things that we really need people to stand up for and to change. It's like, they're just, yeah, hunkering down and what, you know, just going for it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. In social psychology, we talk about a belief in a just world and that we, we tend to believe that the world is a just place, that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people which leads us to a lot of um, defensive um, attributions for why bad things are happening. Hmm. So if you can, you can blame the, um, the bad things that are happening to um, the black community on the people themselves, then it's not, you feel safer about the world because I would not do that. I wouldn't get into that situation. It's, it's basically, you know, um, blaming the victim. Um, mm-hmm. like we do in, in many ways. And it, it helps maintain the status quo and helps us feel more comfortable about the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard a lot um, as people are talking about um, the, the protests and the looting and rioting. Um, and I even heard this coming out of the, the current occupant of the White House. Um, well, if I were in that situation, I would do this. Yeah. Um, and you, you don't know that. And in fact, you're probably very wrong about how you respond because mm-hmm. situations are very powerful. Mm-hmm. And so um, we've, we, we do a lot of mental gymnastics to try right. and to maintain our sense of the world and um, coming to some empathy for how people experience the world different from us is hard. Um, especially when uh, most of us don't, don't live in um, very diverse communities as it is. 
And so you, you don't have contact with people who experience the world differently than you do. Mm-hmm. And you, you don't develop that empathy and then you can blame them for, for when bad things happen to them. Mm-hmm. If they hadn't done that, if they hadn't gone there, if, if they just would have, and, you know, we keep seeing over and over again that all of that is wrong, that you can peacefully protest and be attacked. You can, um, you can put your hands on the wheel and say, yes, sir, and yeah. you can still be killed. You can do all of the things that people tell you that you're supposed to do, and it doesn't work. Um, but yet, people will say, yeah, but they could have, and, you know, could have what? Yeah, mm-hmm. we, yeah. yeah. we need, we need I, more empathy. Yeah, I think the one of the most powerful things this week um, of watching footage of the CNN reporter, that first one um, that happened where like he was being arrested and then his entire crew. And so we see attack on the press there for doing what they're supposed to be doing, doing what normally they would be, you know, like semi protected. Right. And it's just it's that to me, that was one of the most powerful things about it is it answered that question. Well, they could have should have like, no, you wa- you watched everything that they did they could have should have what they were doing it and i i really appreciated like the reporters are back home or whatever you know that were talking to him and were like he they were doing like the crew was where they were supposed to be they were following police orders you know just kind of narrating for the viewers to try to understand that this there's there's nothing this is just this is an act of violence right that these police officers are doing and then we saw more than once in the last week right with around the around the country let me think makes me think a lot about that Mm-hmm. Um, Annie, do you have any other questions? Um, do you want to go to Champagne and Real Pain? No, I right. love Champagne and Real Pain. That sounds great. Okay. Our next sh- segment is a segment. Sh- 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 <laughs> I wish I had some champagne. Just kidding. Um, our next segment is Champagne and Real Pain. Champagne for my real friends. Real pain for my champ friends. And in this segment, we're going to raise our glasses to um, some people that are doing good work, um, that are um, either, yeah, in any shape or form right now that we want to just raise a glass to. So, Anna, you want to start us off? What, who's your yeah. champagne to today? My champagne is to all of the legal defense funds that have popped up in the last, like, uh, week, right, to help assist people who have been arrested during um, protests. And, um, you know, I think about, like, in this con- broader context of, you know, having Michelle as our guest talking about social psychology, that um, this kind of collective um, support of folks who need support right now Um some of the most tangible ways to help are just money, right? So like, okay, someone's arrested and they don't, can't post their bail, right? Or whatever the case may be, they need legal support or legal assistance. Um, legal defense funds are where it's at. They really are helping people a lot, especially folks like, you know, we're talking about um, who are getting arrested and, um, you know, maybe having their, their constitutional rights violated, right? And they need the protection of lawyers or they need the defense of lawyers. Um, so yeah, legal defense funds, champagne. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michelle, anybody you feel like giving some champagne, raising a glass to that you feel like is doing really good work right now? It could be related to any any topic. I I think that um, all of the the businesses, especially the small businesses, that are coming out and saying um, we can replace our property, but things need to change. Um, I think they deserve a a toast, mm-hmm. big and small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, along the same lines, I saw a really funny post from Target executives, <laughs> which they're not small businesses by any means, but it was very much a like, yeah, we understand. We're good. It's fine. This is a messed up situation. And so I uh, want to raise a class definitely um, to them regarding that. 
I also, um, gosh, I just had another one. I was going to raise a glass to, Oh, I want to raise a glass to, um, it's going to sound funny, but there's a lot of white folks that I think are, are finally taking stands on things that they've always felt like they didn't need to take a stand on. So I guess I've been having some conversations last week with a few folks about that. Like, um, so people were like, well, everyone knows that I care about black lives. So why do I need to state it? I'm like, because you do, because many black people don't feel like anyone gives a crap about them because our world doesn't give a crap about them because right. Like, so I think, I, I'm really excited about some of the some of the small movement that I've seen in that. And so part of me is like, it took you long enough. How many people had to die, right? And like, I want to just yell at them. But also at the same time, I'm like, okay, if this moderate conservative Christian lady who I know never talk politics ever in her life is like, it's not politics, it's human life. I'm like, yes, finally, right? Like it's those people that you need to move to move in this direction. So I do want to raise a glass to those people that are um, waking up, I think, and and starting to do something with their collective power and, and awareness. Um, Doug, do you have any champagne? I do just for the humble grocery store employee. Because that's a person I see over and over again. I mean, you know, as, as infrequently as I can manage. Um, but I have great sympathy for them because they're encountering people every day. They don't get the same attention as, as you know, first-line folks in hospitals and such. But that's where my champagne goes. Yeah, perfect. All right, real pain. Um, I got lots of real pain. So <laughs> I uh, real pain, as I just ch- toasted to the white people that are waking up, I'm going to talk about real pain to the people who refuse to understand, refuse to talk to a black person, refuse to try to have a relationship with anybody who is not white and try to have a little bit of empathy. Right. And completely, I feel like there's just a complete like denial and a complete like shutting off of anything else. Um, and to me that is just like ridiculous, um, altogether. And so real pain for those people and also real pain for the police officers, um, who are refusing to stand up in their own communities and try to, like, I know that there are some, um, I didn't want to raise a champagne necessarily to them, but, uh, I think like just the, coll- the collective move that needs to happen. So, some real pain to those folks. Um, obviously, real pain to the murderers um, of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, Ahmad, like a variety, just, yeah, names upon names that we could list. So, um, yeah, real pain for the people that are, are uh, impeding justice from happening in those cases and the leaders that are, you know, refusing to do what's right. Anybody else real pain? <laughs> did, I, did I capture a lot of it? <laughs> I, think you, I, think you it. I think you nailed it. I try not to swear too much, but I was really, there's a lot of expletives when I come out. Yeah, this is the most swearing we've done on an episode in a long time. <laughs> and we lost, that, we lost that, that, that affective filter because Michelle's here and she's like, she's using her psychology tricks on us. So now we're all just like, oh, God, now we can swear. And we can. She's actually a wizard. I don't know if you need that. All right, final final segment, Annie. Go ahead. Do your fudging homework. Interchangeable. White ladies. Oh, I love homework. Um, Okay, so actually, I don't assign a lot of homework myself uh, as a teacher, but I love giving our listeners homework because um, there's always so much to read and see and, you know, to learn. So my homework today is just read Michelle's new research. So our episode casts a really broad net. Don't forget to learn more about social psychology theory generally and to read her new research. Um, Social psychology as a field, it gives us a lot of really helpful language to describe what we're experiencing collectively. Um, And her work is, it dovetails with, you know, the experiences of communities of color and it dovetails with kind of this like experience in academia and kind of this generalizable 
as I would, you know, maybe not, but um, don't generalize too much, but being able to apply these ideas about the role of women in society um, beyond academia into like, you know, other aspects of like how we live. um, It's just really helpful, helpful language to describe what we're going through and what we're experiencing. So um, that's my first homework. My second homework is to read, um, I I love myself a little pop psychology. Um, Psychology Today has an article came out a few days ago, The Psychology of Rioting, uh, The Language of the Unheard. Um, recommend that article, pretty good. Um, uh, Psychology Today, um, despite, you know, being kind of a more accessible resource and not such a, um, like, it's not academic peer-reviewed type research, but they have some really great um, accessible uh, content that kind of, if you need a little intro to social psychology, that's a good place to start if you're, if you're wanting to kind of dip your toe in the water. So that's my two homeworks today. Michelle, any homework for our listeners? Could be an action, a book. Um, I don't know if you thought of something before you came to the show. I would ask people to to do a little internal homework um, to really start thinking about why they're responding to these riots the way they're responding, um, and and be honest with yourself. It, it's okay to be angry at looting, but ask yourself why you're more angry at looting than you are at murder on the street. And I'm just going to go ahead and second both your homeworks. So yeah. There you go. So, yeah, get it. I do have some homework. It's just for those. Do a little homework before you post stuff online. Don't post fake images. Don't post Photoshop stuff. And and, and when you're you're caught out on it, don't say, well, my point was, no, 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 no. No, your point should not be substantiated with fake stuff. It's not cool and it will backfire. Period. I feel like we need that at the end. Period. (laughs) Period. (laughs) Um, Michelle, thank you so much for coming to the show. We really appreciate thank it. You. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It was fun. Bye. Hey, y'all. Don't forget to grab your copy of The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor for our Read Less Basic book club. Follow the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag Read Less Basic. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. And like, especially so last minute too, I appreciate your flexibility. Oh yeah. Well, I'm not leaving the house much, so this is exciting. (laughs) The Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.